Prosperina, the queen of Hades, is swayed by the singing of Orpheus and begs Hades to return his wife in Monteverdi's 1607 opera. The Renaissance has been building for centuries. The rediscovery of Greek and Roman works has given European civilization more than just stories of ancient icons of vegetarianism, like Orpheus. It brings rational voices that challenge old hierarchies and revive ancient arguments against meat-eating. This episode will visit the intellectual circles of 17th century Paris as they argue over what makes humans different from animals. We'll meet a Catholic priest who posed our teeth as evidence that God made us vegetarian and discover how the Mughal court in Delhi affects the history of European medicine and how, when most physicians are bleeding and purging, it becomes normal to go to the doctor and get a prescription of vegetarianism. Vegetarianism, the story so far with Ian MacDonald. Episode 9, Renaissance. Through the Middle Ages, the tradition of Christian ascetics, some of whom follow very sparse vegetable diets, continues. Some English and German churches even have anchor holes attached for the local hermits or anchorites to live in. But Christianity's scholastic tradition follows the hierarchies of Aristotle from ancient Greece, with man above the beasts as surely as God is above man. But from the 14th century, the hunt begins for other Greek and Roman works that lie forgotten in Europe's monasteries. In the tutorial room at University College Oxford, I asked Justin Begley, a scholar of early modern intellectual history, what this means for animals. I do think that with the discovery of a lot of these ancient texts and the real inference in things like um, Pythagoras and all of its metamorphoses and Lucretius' attitudes towards animals, there was, there was a stimulus to rethink the relationship between humans and animals. You might remember Pythagoras from the episode about ancient Greece and how Ovid portrayed him in epic verse for the Romans. But I've never mentioned Lucretius before. He lived in the first century BCE and he did the same thing for Epicurus. Epicurus was called the Garden Philosopher. His school was called the School of the Garden of Philosophers. The Epicureans believed in a world made only of atoms. They rejected supernatural beliefs like divine intervention and life after death. And though it wasn't a point of dogma, Epicurus encouraged vegetarianism. He has a number of reasons for this, mainly sort of ascetic reasons. He thinks that eating meat is quite a decadent thing to do and that it's not necessary for human beings to survive on meat. He said human beings can survive perfectly well eating grains and fruits and vegetables rather than meat. So why ought human beings to eat meat? It's a superfluity. It's something that human beings don't need in order to survive. And he thought we should dispense with superfluity so that we could live this sort of philosophical life that focuses on sort of ideas and, and thoughts and philosophy rather than on sort of things of the body. And Lucretius put all this to epic verse in his poem On the Nature of Things. Its rediscovery in 1417 is sometimes credited with kickstarting Renaissance humanism, the interest in what we now call the humanities. 
Unlike Aristotle, Lucretius credited animals with human qualities like language. The tame herds and the wilder sort of brutes utter dissimilar and various sounds as fear or pain or pleasure influences them. Finding the uh, Aramda Torah, like Lucretius' text, is certainly one of the significant texts that were found during this period. But there was, I mean, there was a mad hunt by everyone trying to find absolutely sort of any classical text that they could, so that they could reconstruct the classical period. And this this started with um, people like Petrarch, uh, Boccaccio, Dante, the people whom we consider as like the classic um, early humanists. Yeah. The first modern European ethical vegetarian is probably the paragon of Renaissance humanism himself, Leonardo da Vinci. He condemns cruelty to animals. He talks about how he wouldn't let his body be, quote, a tomb for other animals, an inn of the dead, unquote. The evidence isn't completely untainted. He designs stoves for meat and reportedly poses dead animals for his still-life paintings. But... As we heard last episode, his reputation amongst his peers is absolutely that he's vegetarian. Unfortunately, it didn't quite move society in that direction. That honour belongs to a 16th century French statesman and lawyer and enthusiastic follower of Lucretius, Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne had what you might call an experimental father. Firstly, he was fostered with a peasant family. Um, his father thought this, would, this could counterbalance the wealth of his family by, by putting him with the servants rather than, rather than with the rest of the family. And that after he was taken from the servants, he was only allowed to speak Latin in the house. So he went from this sort of extreme, I guess, like a quite, quite impoverished for this period, considering of what class he is, to on the other extreme, sort of a very immersed completely in this sort of classical education that was something of a, of a gentleman. In his essays, he quotes the vegetarian advocates of antiquity and treats animals as more than just traditional allegories for human qualities. Um, I think Montaigne also wanted to emphasise that humans were faulty beings, that we weren't sort of demigods or anything like this, but we were rather beings that were closer to other animals that were fallen. And I think this was part of his um, skepticism as well, the idea that human beings don't have perfect knowledge, we have imperfect knowledge. He also believed that animals had emotions, that animals had the capacity for rationality, that they had a certain form of language that they can communicate um, with one another that we just couldn't understand because of our lack of knowledge. He quotes what you heard Lucretius say about animals earlier and adds, By one kind of barking, the horse knows a dog is angry. Of another sort of a bark, he is not afraid. Even in the very beasts that have no voice at all, we easily conclude from the social offices we observe amongst them some other sort of communication. I mean, so far as we know, Montaigne wasn't a vegetarian, but he certainly was sympathetic towards uh, vegetarianism. And he says the sort of harming animals is, is something that's completely unfounded and things like this. So, I mean, I think there is a certain blind spot in his thinking, and I think that probably does have to do with the society in which he is living. That's typical of the era. Despite the millions of vegetarians in the East, European thinkers are still mainly just chipping away at the justifications for meat-eating. Montaigne, though, influences generations of thinkers, such as in Paris. And we will soon be arriving at Paris Gare du Nord. Please make sure you take your belongings with you when you leave the train. We're standing outside the Yellowstone quadrangle of the Collège de France on the Seine's south bank, founded in 1530 as the Royal College, as a humanist alternative to the theological Sorbonne that I can see just round the corner. 
where at this college, because of one of its 17th century maths professors, a Catholic priest who suggested that God made us vegetarian, I'm, I'm here with... I'm Jean-Charles Larmont, a professor of the University of Versailles, a researcher here and a specialist in the Republic of Letters and our subject, Pierre Gassendi. What was the Republic of Letters? Well, the, the, it was the whole network of philosophers, poets, scientists, naturalists, as they call themselves, writing to each other, competing to each other, with uh, the notion that uh, they were not totally dependent on nations. They had uh, a certain freedom linked to knowledge. And Gassendi was um, one of the main representatives of what they called uh, libertas philosophandi, which means uh, freedom to philosophize, freedom to think. He was here as a professor of mathematics. He wrote to Galileo. He had a very important activity as an astronomer. And that what was he was teaching here mainly. So, for example, he was the first human being to observe the shadow of another planet across the sun. There's a crater named after him on the moon. But he's in our story as the man who links Epicureanism, anatomy, Christianity and the question... Look at these canines. They're tiny. How can we be carnivores? Uh, the main topic, the main Yassandi's work was not only to reactivate um, Epicurus, it was also to create uh, scientific links around new science. In that respect, his interest uh, for such topic as nutrition or the way meat is good or bad for you was uh, intimately linked also to his own understanding of ancient philosophers. He was always trying to um, increase uh, knowledge through a whole network of interactions. He was the, considered also as the main rival uh, of René Descartes, as uh, the great alternative in the modern thinking to uh, Cartesian thinking. Let's get away from the noise of the Rudicol and talk in your office. Descartes was very much influenced by automatons, these sort of little mechanical animals and men that were created in Europe at this time. And he thought that animals, that bodies in general, functioned like automatons. He's, in a letter to Moore, he writes that we could create an automaton that functions just like an animal. Since art copies nature, and people can make various automatons that move without thought. It seems reasonable that nature should produce its own automatons, much more splendid than artificial ones, namely the animals. Thus, we know of no reason we would always find a thought whenever we see the kind of bodies that animals have. That no animal contains a soul should not be as surprising as the fact that every human body does. Like Gassendi, Descartes is from provincial France. They're both citizens of the Republic of Letters, whose lives take them across France and the Low Countries. But whereas Gassendi follows on from Epicureans like Montaigne, Descartes likes to think he starts from a blank slate, 
with the famous... I think, therefore, I am. Descartes does pull on the humanist tradition more than he would like to admit, but he also wants to say that his, his philosophy is completely new, that he's breaking with the ancient um, philosophers, which is something that someone like Gassendi gets on his case about saying, no, your philosophy isn't absolutely new. The most provocative of his suggestions is that the world, including animals, is simply a machine unwinding like a watch. It's mechanical philosophy that everything, including the human body and other animals, are mechanical. Everything except for the human mind. Only the human mind? Only the human mind um, is, is not mechanical. And I think Descartes' work pushed someone like Gassendi to take a particular stance on certain attitudes towards animals and certain other things in his philosophy that he may not have fully thought out if it wasn't for um, Descartes' work. Meanwhile, Gassendi is an advocate of Epicureanism, including vegetarianism. So you may well ask, Pierre Gassendi is a Catholic priest. Why is he following a materialist, atheist, pagan philosophy? Well, firstly, it's the dawn of the Age of Reason. Copernic, Galileo, Antico Brahe, etc. Christianity has been using the cosmology of Aristotle for a few hundred years, but He's clearly wrong about stuff. For example, he thought the sun went round the earth. Because in many ways, atomistic philosophy was uh, much more consistent with new sciences, uh, you know. Uh, but at the same time, he was n well known to be a priest. And he was never suspected to be an atheist. His life was far away from the image people had of Epicurean life. So, so Epicureanism, even in the 17th century, meant, was associated with hedonism? Yes, of course. That misunderstanding has been around since antiquity. Epicureans seek pleasure, but only through a modesty of desires, something that fits well with Gassendi's own ascetic lifestyle. The thing is with Gassendi's vegetarianism is that it's largely Epicurean. The reason that he does it is because he's been so influenced by Epicurus. So I think that one of the reasons why the way Gassendi criticizes the use of animal flesh to have uh, all kinds of banquets, etc., is also connected to um, this uh, rigorous, austere uh, conception of healthy life. At the same time, morally and uh, physically. When he talked about his uh, vegetarian positions, it was not a dogma. It, it was obviously linked to a complex reflection on nature, what it is to follow nature, to live according to nature. This is a very old theme. In Mersenne's Academy, for instance, there were questions. Mersenne's Academy is a nickname for the Paris Circle. Father Mersenne is the unofficial secretary and networker-in-chief of the Republic of Letters. Uh, different scholars uh, tried to give the best answer to those questions, you know. And uh, he had one of these debates with uh, a famous chemist and uh, doctor, um, Jean-Baptiste von Helmont. They had a debate uh, about this question, about do we think that eating flesh is natural to man? Uh, that was the main question. 
Gesendi writes, From the conformation of our teeth, we do not appear to be adapted by nature in the use of a flesh diet, as all animals which nature has formed to feed on flesh have their teeth long, conical, sharp, uneven, and intervals between them. The kind of teeth you find among tigers, tigers wolves, dogs, <laughs> or uh, lions, or, or, or wolves. But those who are created to subsist only on herbs and fruits have their teeth short, blunt, close to one another, and distributed in even rows. Some vegetarians and vegans make precisely the same argument today. This is where it begins. So it was um, a first approach based on, uh, I would say, at the, at the same time, anatomical arguments, and also on a finalist conception of nature. What does finalist mean? Finalist mean explaining a phenomenon through his final causes, you know, examining what kind of goal nature would have had. Because if you believe God designed us, then his design is a clue to his intentions, to what's natural, healthy and moral. Um, so Gessandi says that what anatomy tells us about human teeth is totally in harmony also with what the Bible tells us about men in paradise eating fruit, uh, where, where no mention at all is made of flesh before sin before the first sin, okay? And that in ancient mythology, in the golden age of poets, of ancient poets, it's uh, quite symbolical that men eat fruit and not flesh. In the ancient Near East, these myths of a herbivorous golden age didn't prompt many people to eat vegetarian then. But now Christian intellectuals at least consider what food God had had in mind. Most learned people had at least thought about it um, if, they, if they didn't propound it. Thinking about it, but not necessarily believing it. Thinking about it, probably even believing it, but despite the fact that they did believe it, not necessarily saying that it's, it's sort of a clenching reason why human beings ought to be uh, vegetarians. I mean, it was much simpler for them because most people didn't believe in evolution at this time. So they believed that God designed humans in such a way that they were only supposed to eat plants because before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't eat meat. There was no sort of death at the point of the fall. So if they believe that uh, human beings were designed only to eat plants, then there's a reason to think that human beings are still designed only to eat plants, despite the fact that we eat meat in our fallen state. And he said there was a joke there. It's irony saying that if it was really natural to eat cooked meat, then nature should have created cooks from the start <laughs> or uh, uh, cooked dishes <laughs> from the start. The eyes would grow on trees. Exactly. In the same letter, he says to Van Almont, well, you should ask me why I'm not a vegetarian. Well, 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 I'm still um, determined by my own habits, but I should be vegetarian. And actually, as he grew older, he almost uh, ate no meat or, you know, very rarely. Typical of the era. Descartes finishes his main work, setting out his mechanistic philosophy in 1641, 
it gets a strong reaction. By this time, Gassendi's Paris circle includes refugees from England. He was also, I mean, somewhat engaged with um, the Cavendishes and the exiles from England that were living in um, Paris during the 1640s as well. And he corresponded with... These would be royalists from the Civil War. Royalists that were exiled from England due to the Civil War and were gathered in Paris and were many of whom were quite eminent intellectuals and thinkers, people like Thomas Hobbes. It's Hobbes who coined the expression nasty, brutish and short for life without an all-powerful sovereign state maintaining order. The things that connect Gassendi and uh, Thomas Hobbes the most is their hatred towards um, Descartes, I would say. And they both, um, in Descartes' um, meditations, he sends it out to different people for objections, and two of the objections are, are from Gassendi and Hobbes in, in these meditations. In the spirit of the Republic of Letters, Descartes appends his opponent's criticisms with his responses. Gassendi. You may cite humans' deeds that far surpass what the animals do, but that shows only that man is the finest animal, not that he isn't an animal. You say that the brutes don't have reason. Well, of course, they don't have human reason, but they do have their own kind of reason. Descartes claims that what makes humans more than automatons is their thinking, reasoning mind, and that that's completely unique to humans. This rests on interpretations about animal behaviour that a lot of European thinkers, however omnivorous they may be, dismiss. One, because it deviated so much from the classical tradition and from what they were used to. And two, yeah, people with experience of animals. I think experience of animals is another thing to take into consideration. William Cavendish, for example, was completely incredulous. And he was sort of the Euro Europe's master horseman at this time. So he had spent a lot of times with horses and whatnot. So he, and he, and he was just, yeah, he, did, he was not buying the idea that a horse, for example, was an automaton. It's an argument about human exceptionalism. In one exchange, Descartes claims only humans have imagination and he imagines taking a break and looking down on people in the square below. When looking from a window and saying, I see men who pass in the street, I really do not see them, but infer that what I see is me. And yet, what do I see from the window but hats and coats which could be covering automatons? Gassendi was having none of it. You deny that a dog has a mind like yours, but it certainly makes a similar kind of judgment when it sees not its master, but just his hat or clothes. Descartes doubles down. I don't see what argument you are relying on when you so confidently say that a dog makes discriminating judgments in the same way that we do. Unless it is this, a dog is made of flesh, so everything that is in you also exists in the dog. But I observe no mind at all in the dog. So I don't think there is anything to be found in a dog that resembles the things I recognize in a mind. In 1645, William Cavendish marries the young, fashionable and extremely geeky Margaret. She opposes Descartes in poetry here empathising with a hunted hare. As if that god made creatures for man's meat, to give them life and sense for man to eat, making their stomachs graves which full they fill with murdered bodies that in sport they kill. Yet man doth think himself so gentle, mild, when he of creatures is most cruel, wild. 
and is so proud, thinks only he shall live, that God a godlike nature did him give, and that all creatures for his sake alone was made for him to tyrannise upon. Margaret will go on to write arguably the first science fiction novel, be the only woman to visit the Scientific Royal Society in its first 200 years, and you should look her up. Like almost everyone else this episode, she doesn't follow through to vegetarianism, but she does strongly oppose vivisection, which is extremely common in this era, such as cutting open live animals like dogs to demonstrate basic anatomy. Not just Descartes does that, but Gassendi's student Bernier, to whom we'll get in a moment. But there's a question over whether Descartes himself is actually a Cartesian, whether he believes his own books. But then when he's pressed on this point by someone like William Cavendish, who perhaps for reasons that he wants William to be his patron, he doesn't want him to completely hate his ideas, he, um, he sort of to some degrees retracts and says, no, animals can perhaps feel, but they just don't have the capacity for self-reflection or thought, but they can still feel pain and whatnot. He wants to have his cake and eat it too, basically. He wants to simultaneously say that the world functions in this very regulatory, mechanical way, but that he's not quite comfortable with his position on animals. Cassandi dies in 1655, leaving an impact throughout the Republic of Letters. There was a very strong Gassendist um, movement in France, but also in Europe, uh, not only in France, even in England. Uh, some say that even uh, Newton, Isaac Newton, had uh, also um, a strong influence of, of Gassendis. Uh, uh, but the problem is that Gassendi wrote his book in you know, very difficult Latin, I must say. And, and, uh, because you've translated it. Uh, yes, and it's not even translated. Most of it is not translated into French, still now. And that Descartes won this uh, battle, not only because his philosophy was very powerful, and very, and, but also because his way of writing was much more accessible. The Chattachauk, the covered bazaar of the Red Fort in Delhi, when I walked through it, stores sold tourist trinkets, but in the 17th century, its merchants sell silks and jewels to the Mughal court within. François Bernier, his pupil, you know, Gassendi's secretary, when he went to India, where he, he stayed with uh, the Grand Mogol, you know, the big Mogul there, uh, Aurangzeb. After Gassendi's death, his pupil Bernier travels. He spends time in Egypt, the Middle East, and finally India, where he joins the entourage of the Mughal crown prince as a physician. The prince is a great grandson of Emperor Akbar and a tolerant man who sees the same god in the Quran and the Indian scriptures. But within a year, Aurangzeb, his brother, defeats him and has him put to death. Aurangzeb abandons pluralism, reinstitutes the tax on non-Muslims, destroys temples and executes some other religious leaders, including a Sufi saint and the Sikh guru. Bernier, though, privy to the new European medical discoveries, is highly valued. And he gave philosophy lessons to his first minister. Bernier gave philosophy lessons? Yes. Uh, he taught him Gassendi's philosophy in Persian, <laughs> which was just incredible. And Bernier, when he wrote his summary of Gassendi's philosophy, I have the text here, he compares uh, Gassendi's argument about the healthy aspect of abstinence of those uh, philosophers 
This may show that all these fine ideas which we have just discussed are not purely philosophical speculations, but that there are whole populations which lead such a frugal life and who are also satisfied with little, as are the Cynics, Stoics and Epicureans. Of course, he, he sees India with a lot of references to ancient philosophies and modern philosophies. There are, in the Indies, a number of fakirs. Their drink is pure water, and their food, when it is supplied by means of alms, a pound of kichari, which is a mixture of rice and of two or three kinds of lentils, the whole cooked with water and salt and topped with a bit of boiled butter. This um, notion that only meat can give you energy So he says, that's totally wrong. You know, my experience in India showed that those men had tremendous powers and, and energy and, and when, didn't eat any meat. <laughs> Vernier says this not just of the priests, but even many of the merchants. However prosperous they may become, their food is neither more abundant nor more delicious than that of the Brahmins. And yet... They live at least as peacefully, happily, and as contentedly as us, and much healthier. They are at least as strong and vigorous as we are. With his detailed eyewitness accounts of both the Mughal war machine and Indian medicine, Bernier becomes one of 17th century Europe's leading writers on India. For example, he describes how vegetarianism gives the Indian army a massive strategic advantage. There are not only moral religious reasons, but also political and... Uh, of the hundred thousand troopers, not a tenth, no, not a twentieth part, eat animal food. They are satisfied with their kitri. A new medical, Indian medical thinking, which is, was pretty rare. I shall observe, by the way, that their practice differs in essence from ours. Still in Delhi, in a house in the grounds of Jawaharlal Nehru University, I met professor of the history of science, Deepak Kumar, and he told me Bernier wasn't the only European interested in Indian medicine. Uh, when they also looked into the indigenous materia med medica, many people have talked about. If you've got a really good memory of our first episode and its argument over a disputed convalescent meal of scavenged chicken, you might be wondering why Indian medicine has changed since then. Though it is very interesting that originally the Indian materia medica is not totally vegetarian. There are animal meats prescribed. There is a broth which they prescribe. However, gradually in the medieval times, late medieval times, Indian Ayurveda came to be synonymous, known as synonymous with vegetarianism. What's late medieval? It is 17th, 18th century. And, uh, you know, when certain kind of diseases were being treated, people were asked to remain vegetarian. For example, smallpox. Smallpox was attributed to a diti called Shitala. Shital means cool. So whenever one was afflicted with smallpox or chickenpox, they were prescribed a vegetarian, cool vegetarian diet. This vegetarian diet involved a little bit of milk, some rice flakes and so forth for a couple of days. Illness, I think, 
was always treated with vegetarianism. The chief remedy for sickness is abstinence. Nothing is worse for a sick body than meat broth, for it soon corrupts in the stomach of someone afflicted with fever. And a patient should be bled only in extraordinary circumstances. All this time, bleeding is standard practice. Across the Christian and Muslim worlds, it's meant to remove excess or stale blood. We thought, just like the Indians, that a lot of diseases came from flesh. Whether the modalities of treatment be judicious, I shall let our physicians decide. I shall only say that they are successful in India, and that the Mughal and Muslim physicians adopt them no less than those of the pagans, especially in regard to abstaining from meat broth. Uh, the, the tradition I thought it was part of was the idea that the vegetable diet was useful for some people if they were ill, almost as an alternative to bleeding from some research. It's true, because he said uh, that meat soup, the bouillon de viande, proved to have very bad effects, for instance, for people who had flu. Against fever, you had to avoid beef soup, for instance. Uh, so as an extension, you'd better eat vegetable and, <laughs> and avoid beef. When Bernier returns after a decade in India, he vouches for how much better he feels on a mostly vegetarian diet. But that doesn't mean he's any more ethically committed to animals. François Bernier wanted to show a Mughal noble called Danishmand Khan blood circulation. He wanted to, to tell that, you know, this the blood circulation takes place. So Bernier, what he does, he kills before Danishmand Khan a lamb and tries to show experimentally, you know, how this circulation takes place and how Harvey had described it. The Indian idea of abstinence as therapy chimes not just with Gassendi's Epicureanism, but with Europe's renewed interest in classical physicians like Hippocrates. And of course, Bernier's translation of Gassendi from the Latin into the vernacular introduces him to a much wider audience. In 18th century, a lot of Gassendi's ideas went back to France, but through the English philosophers, mm. you know, when Voltaire uh, uh, quotes Locke uh, or some of Locke philosophy as uh, something so strong and precious, very often there are uh, themes you find in Gassendi, <laughs> uh, you know, against uh, Descartes, against uh, Aristotelians, uh, etc. In 1698, a generation later, in the London of Isaac Newton and Samuel Pepys, some sailors bring their sick young African chimpanzee to the physician of Bedlam Madhouse for treatment. And despite this, the chimpanzee dies, and the physician, Edward Tyson, dissects him and writes up the dissection in the way he would the dissection of a human. For the first time, we can compare human anatomy to that of another ape, Tyson remarks how very similar the brain and voice box are. He wonders whether the chimp has some of the human qualities that we heard Descartes and Gassendi arguing over. He even questions whether he was an ape or a man before ultimately declaring... Him to be wholly a brute, and in the sensitive or brutal soul, 
more resembling a man than any other animal. John Wallace, founder member of the Royal Society, inventor of the infinity symbol, popularizer of the idea that blood circulates, wonders what this says about whether humans should eat meat. I shall consider it with Gattendi as a question in natural philosophy, whether it be proper food for man. Particularly as they're only aware of apes eating fruit, the dissection seems to back up Gassendi, more because of the intestines, says Tyson, than because of the teeth. Man therefore having these parts formed, not like carnivorous animals, as you will observe, but more resembling those that live on herbs, roots and fruits, etc. It may seem reasonable to conclude that nature never designed him to live on flesh, but that the wantonness of his appetite and a depraved custom had inured him to it. But our two scientists decide that humans are exceptions to the anatomical rule. Tyson. Yet we observe, even in animals that live on the same sort of food, that their stomachs are very different. Your observation, therefore, as to brutes, though it may hold for the most part true, yet it is not universal. These letters and the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society are cited for centuries both by Gassendists and their opponents. Tristram Stewart is the author of The Bloodless Revolution, a cultural history of vegetarianism from, roughly, here onwards. In a meeting room in his food waste campaign's co-working space, he told me just how influential Gassendist ideas were. In particular, in the world of medicine, it became more or less an orthodoxy that humans had originally been designed by God to be vegetarian, and that if our bodies had been designed in that way, it followed that that was the best diet for humanity. And yet, even if we did have permission still to kill animals, and that permission had been given after the flood, it was nevertheless uh, as it were, a compromise, a, a kind of a sign, if you like, of fallen humanity. And that therefore, within the medical profession, when people were suffering from diseases that were perceived to be lifestyle-related, eating too much, eating luxuriously, eating too much meat and too many rich foods and too much alcohol, it became a very widespread prescription amongst doctors that those people suffering from those diseases should take up vegetarianism either permanently or temporarily in order to quell the diseases that they had incurred through their lifestyle choices. But what of the old Christian fasting traditions? They're still there, particularly in Catholic countries, but they are weakening with more and more loopholes and exemptions. The order of the Trappists, Trappists as in the beer, try to get back to a more strict observance. A repentant libertine founds the order in La Trappe in 1664 and in the beginning their diet is almost vegan. And in 1709 a godly Parisian physician publishes a book condemning the spurious medical exemptions that the people can buy to avoid the Easter fast. Treatise on dispensations from the Lenten fast in which we discover the falseness of the pretext that are given to obtain them. Philip Hecke, his primary argument for vegetarianism is if you look at what ascetic Catholics practice, if you look at what we are encouraged to do during the Catholic fasts of Easter and on other fast days, that is a clear indication that there is theological basis for veg vegetarianism and he added to that the empirical scientific reason why 
eating vegetables was better for your health than eating meat. Showing via the mechanics of the body, the natural relationship of fasting foods with the nature of man and their suitability for health. If you're a vegetarian in 17th or 18th century Europe, you run the risk of being called an enthusiast or a freak. What Philip Hecke did was pitch vegetarianism to a wide public with the philosophical and theological cover of its endorsement by the Catholic mainstream, in particular the fasts and the ascetic traditions of Catholicism was by Hecke presented as an endorsement of the goodness of a vegetarian diet. Hecke divines the Paris Faculty of Medicine as much for his promotion of a pescatarian, later vegetarian, diet as for the side he takes in arguments over how digestion works. He thinks digestion is a grinding process, physics rather than chemistry. From this, we can undoubtedly already see what kind of food is preferable for men. It will not be animal flesh, but other substances that will be more predisposed to grinding and kneading before passing into this milky liquor that makes blood. A common theory in the age of Newton, if a scientific dead end, but the idea of the vegetable diet as therapy carries on. It is the imprimatur of classical medicine. Hecke was nicknamed the Hippocrates of France. That ancient physician's first recourse had been to balance the patient's four humours with a diet, sometimes a cooling fleshless one. The modern medical school really begins in the 1710s, with Hermann Boerhaave taking over and systemising the faculty at Leiden, near Amsterdam. He's quite veg-curious. I myself have lived a considerable time upon the poorest way in biscuit, without the least prejudice to the strength and action of my digestive organs. Edinburgh University sets up its own medical faculty in 1726 with lecturers like Alexander Munro at Anatomy. Hence man, from this form of his intestines and that of the teeth, seems to have been originally designed for feeding on vegetables, and still the most of his food and all his drink is of that class. And William Cullen at the theory and practice of medicine, who said of Indian vegetarians... Amounting to about 40 million of people who live without animal food and seem to enjoy as perfect health as Europeans, and more health than Mohammedans, their neighbours, who indulge in animal food. This influences generations of medical students. In fact, Alexander Munro's son and then grandson hold the chair of anatomy until 1846. The grandson earns a reputation for just rereading Grandad's century-old lectures with, noted Charles Darwin, an appallingly dull delivery. It's argued about. There's opposition as well. But the idea of prescribing a vegetable diet remains a respectable part of medical orthodoxy until well into the 19th century. The idea echoes in sayings like starve a fever. So in the 17th century, European intellectuals tear down the old certainties around meat-eating in both medicines and morals. But what about the enthusiasts and the fanatics that Tristram mentioned? Outside of the cloisters and Catholicism, it's an intellectual free-for-all. There are populist gurus that merge the vegetable diet with their own take on world history. Religious groups who seek the herbivorous morality of Eden and best-selling diet books. Especially to the radicals of the English Civil War. And that is where we turn next episode. 
with the voices of Goulon Blanchard, Sally Beaumont, and from Jute Theatre Company Dundee, Vashel Navasha, Connor Ogg, and Ian Brodie. Brian Hoyle produced for Jute, with the music of Monteverdi performed by Anna Simberley, Purcell by Papala, Gesualdo by Dennis Carpenter, and Rob Masters. Please follow on Facebook and twitter.com slash veganoption and discover more at veghist.org. <laughs>